All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Let's try that again. Good morning, guys. That's better. Start out awake. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor. And uh, before we dive into our text, I want to highlight uh, a specific opportunity and need. Um, Trailhead Kids is our largest Sunday morning ministry outside of this room, right? We've got a whole group of kids downstairs, and, and it's way more than, than just watching kids and babysitting. We are engaging um, these kids with the gospel and sharing with them the love of Christ. It is exciting, and in fact, probably uh, some of the most productive ministry that takes place on a Sunday morning. I mean, we're talking about some of the softest hearts in the building downstairs, right? And, and so here's the thing. As we kind of come into the fall, there are two things I want to highlight. One is a need. Um, we have, we just switched over church databases and it allowed me to see how many people we have uh, registered in different areas. I was amazed to see we actually have 160 kids registered in Trailhead Kids. 160. Um, now, they don't all show up on the same Sunday, but, but we do run about half that every Sunday. And that means we need people that are going to uh, teach those kids, lead those kids, um, keep those kids safe, and the rest of that. We need volunteers. And we need, um, like I said, that's our biggest ministry. We need a lot of volunteers. And so I'm going to encourage you, if you've never served in Trailhead Kids, would you like you to consider it, right? If you've got some hands and feet and a mouth and you breathe, um, we can use you, right? I mean, that's really, you're like, yeah, but I, I don't know that I like kids. It's okay. I'm not sure they like you either. But, but we're going we're gonna to put you in a place where, where we limit your damage, okay? We're, we're going to help you serve in a way that, that you're actually a blessing, and, and, um, uh, and hopefully you're blessed in return, right? Because honestly, that's what it means to be a community on mission, right? Walking in Christ is a community on mission. A community on mission is a community that is serving one another, not just showing up and, and saying, hey, this is what's good for me, or hey, this is what makes me happy, or this is what... So, so I would encourage you if, you, if you haven't served in Trailhead Kids, please consider it. Um, we have people down there right now that have served every week for years. And they're dedicated, and I love them. Um, but that's because we don't have enough, enough people in the rotation. If we have more people in the rotation, people don't have to serve as much. Although there are some that will choose to because they love it that much. But, but it allows people to, to, uh, to serve and, and get rest. And so I'm going to encourage you, if you haven't served in Trailhead Kids, um, man, we would love to see you volunteer. We will find a way for you to serve that fits your gifts. Okay, that doesn't kill you. I guarantee you. Uh, the second thing is this: those of you who are parents coming to the ten forty-five, I just want to say thank you. Um, our nine o'clock service is our definitely our bigger service when it comes to kids. And so at the nine a.m., I kind of threw a pitch out there, like, "Hey, some of you need to consider coming to the later service um, because we're lopsided. We have way more kids at the nine than at the ten forty-five. We have two fully staffed teams, and just getting them fully uh, uh, distributed better will will help us serve those kids better." Uh, we've actually, over the last year, had to start, like, turning families away, which is, that breaks my heart. Now, we're not going to do that with guests and newcomers. Uh, we're going to make room for them, but we are going to do it with, with our regular attenders. And some of you have had that experience where, you, you know, you, your kids couldn't stay. And, and so this is my encouragement. If you're coming to the 1045, stay at the 1045. Okay? Just stick around, right? Don't go to the 9. It's not, no, it's not good. This is way better. This is way better. This is where you want to be, okay? Um, and, and you'll help us um, by, by doing that, okay? So, so volunteer and, and stay here, all right? All right, grab your Bibles. We're going over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 474. Um, 
Psalm 51. All right, I think we can all agree there's, there's a lot of diversity of, of, of political opinion and background and, and, and different experiences, and, and, and uh, there's a lot of things we could get into arguments about, but I think there's one thing that I'm pretty sure we could all agree on, and that's this, that, that we don't like hypocrites. We don't like hypocrites, right? People who condemn people and then turn around and do the very thing they condemn. Doesn't that drive you crazy? Right? When you hear somebody like, like calling somebody out for something and then they just turn around and go do the very thing they're calling somebody else out for, right? This is what makes our political and our, our, our social climate and culture so difficult right now because, uh, man, this is what's going on, right? You got people that are like calling out the, the, the other side for all this stuff and then excusing it on their own, right? So in, in one breath they're like, this is why they're so bad. And the other breath they're like, well, it's all right over here. It's not that big of a deal. And it makes, it makes, it makes it impossible to have honest conversations because people aren't interested in being honest. They're interested in being right. And when people are more interested in being right than in being honest, you can't have a conversation, right? All you can have are dueling monologues. So what ends up happening is, is people will condemn someone for doing something and then in the same breath excuse somebody else for doing the same thing. So here's the thing, you guys. It's, it's really easy to spot hypocrisy in others. And it's really, really hard to see in ourselves. When we see it in others, it's really frustrating. When we see it in others, it's maddening, right? I mean, it is like, man, you are so hypocritical, right? But when we see it in ourselves, we often have this narrative that helps explain it, right? To soften it. There's always a story that goes with it. Like, like it's, it's bad for you, but it's okay for me because. And then we've got this long story that we tell ourselves. And what happens in the end is, is like, yeah, maybe, maybe, but I'm just not, I'm not as bad. And what ends up happening is, is we can despise someone else for lying or manipulating or flattering and then turn around and quietly praise ourselves for doing the same exact thing. So we hate it when, when, when we see it in others and we excuse it when we see it in, our, in ourselves. And we hate it when someone comes in and exposes our hypocrisy, right? When someone exposes the gap between who we think we are and who we show ourselves to be. When, when someone exposes the gap between what we say and, and what we do, we hate it because it makes us feel shame. It makes us feel exposed. It makes us feel vulnerable. It makes us feel like, like if I'm not the person I'm projecting myself to be, man, then I'm in danger. I, I'm, 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 I'm vulnerable. I'm, I'm exposed. So, so I want us to all start with this. Can we, can we all start with this? Let's start in a place of honesty, okay? Can we all just start on, on a level playing field? Can we all just agree that we're, we're, we're all hypocrites? Can we start there? You all good with that? Some of you are like, no, Steve. It's all right. We're, the, we're all there, okay? We're going to start there. We, we all have this way of, of despising things in others that we excuse in ourselves. We all have this way of, of calling things out in others that we find ways of, of overlooking in ourselves. And so I just want to start there, man. Let's just start on that level playing field. Um, because we all condemn someone else while we excuse ourselves, right? And, and what ends up happening is this. When we do that, it blocks us from being honest. It, it becomes a wall between us and honesty, which means it becomes a wall between us and our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with others, and most importantly, our, our relationship with God. And this is why Psalm 51 is such good news, 
Okay, so let's dig into Psalm 51, and we're going to take a look at, at how this speaks into this issue. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good design and your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you, be, you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, as we talked about last week, this is a Psalm of David, and it was written right after, or at least it's about that moment, right after he was exposed in, in his shame. And, and, and I want to pause, because shame can come from, from a number of different places, right? And, and so for, for David, it was, it was shame about his behavior. He had done something shameful, and, 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 he, and, and it was exposed, right? So shame can come from, from when we do something. And often we think we can do it in hiding, and then it comes out into the open, and, and we feel the exposure of it. We feel the shame of it, right? Shame can come from other people's behavior toward us, things they do to us, ways they treat us. It can come from words they speak over us that, that we listen to, and, and, and we start subtly believing, and if, even if we hate what we've heard, right? And shame, and, and I think honestly, sometimes the most powerful forms of shame can come from the exposure of, of the gap between who who you want to be, and who you actually are. Like when you run up against your own limitations, right? I, I, man, this, I was reminded of that this week, man. I, I feel shame when I'm not what people expect me to be. When I'm not what people need me to be. When, when, when I step into a pastoral situation and I'm like, you know, I'm here to be the embodiment of the presence of God for you, and I find myself so limited. A shame, right? It just it exposes my weakness. It makes me want to hide. It makes me want to. I mean, there are times, honestly, when 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 I'll leave a meeting and I just want to go hide in the car and not talk to anybody and not see anyone because I just feel that you know when you get confronted with your own limitations, it, these things expose your your shame. So for David, in this text, it comes from his choices. It comes from his actions. He was caught in his shame. 
He betrayed people who trusted him. He, he used his power to abuse people who, who he was supposed to use that power to protect, right? He used his power to sleep with Bathsheba. He used his power to, to once Uriah would, would not go along with, with covering it up, and, and, and he was just a little too honorable. He, he allowed Uriah to be exposed in combat so that he would be killed, right? The king of Israel, through a series of choices, had become a rapist and a murderer. And God in his grace would not let him hide. God sent him Nathan the prophet. Even though David had done all this stuff to cover it up and make sure that that it could just go unnoticed, God sent Nathan the prophet and said, we're not going to leave this hidden, man. I'm opening it up. I'm going to declare it to you and we're going to open it up for the nation of Israel. And and what ends up happening, and this is is an amazing thing that that we're going to dig into, is that instead of fighting against God, David owned his shame. When he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, instead of doing what Saul had done and so many others before him and and fighting against it and trying to keep it hidden and trying to deny it or minimize it, David pushed into the shame. He owned the shame. And in owning the shame, he received its gift. And as we talked about last week, the gift of shame is humility. An awareness of our limitations an awareness of our potential for evil, our, our, uh, an awareness of our helplessness. God wouldn't let him hide. So humility um, was the gift of shame, and, and humility is one of the greatest gifts God gives us because it's the gateway to all the other gifts. Right? The blessing of humility never comes by itself. Humility opens the door for, for a myriad other blessings in our lives, and, and David's going to be processing that in this psalm, and, and we're going to be taking a look at this. And one of the first gifts that we see emerge is, is this gift of boldness, right? Shame, shame makes us weak. Shame makes us want to hide. Shame makes us want to pull back and, and, and covers us with condemnation so that we lose our voice and we lose our strength. Because there's this thing that, that triggers in us that, that on one hand says, I don't deserve to be loved, I don't deserve to be known, but on the other hand is like this prideful self-protection. Like, I'm not going to let you tell me I can't be loved. I'm not going to let you tell me that I'm undeserving. And so we pull back and we get defensive and we start covering. But what we find in the first two verses of this psalm is a bold exposure and a bold request, right? He comes and, and, and he says three times, he's like, Lord, blot out my transgression. Lord, wash me thoroughly. Lord, cleanse me. All right, think about the context, because this really could come off as being pretty arrogant, right? This dude's just been exposed. He, he just, he, he's, he's, he's the king of Israel. He was anointed by God to be, to be the under king of, of God's people. He was supposed to use his authority to protect God's people, to lead God's people into blessing. He abused that power to, to fulfill selfish desires, to protect his own shame. He, 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 he's standing there, exposed in his shame, condemned in his behavior, and he's standing before the rightful judge of the universe, the all-holy, omnipotent God, and saying, wash me. Cleanse me. That's bold. (laughs) 
And that's the exact opposite of what shame would normally lead us to do. Shame would normally make us grovel and manipulate and, and, and bargain. And, and well, I'll, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. And, and I'll clean myself up in this way. And I'll try to do this. And see, he's, not, he's standing there bold like, God, do these things for me. But listen, David's boldness wasn't arrogance. David's boldness was based on God's character. In verse 1, it tells us that that David is praying to a God, and he's saying, God, you are a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. You are a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. Those are loaded phrases. Anytime you see these phrases in the Old Testament, anytime when you see steadfast love and faithfulness, God being a God of abundant mercy and grace, when you see those phrases, I want you to remember this verse. I put it up last week. I'm going to put it up again this week. This is Exodus 34, 6, critical verse. When God is revealing himself to Moses in the Old Testament and giving the law to Moses, the Ten Commandments and all the other laws, and he's revealing himself to Moses, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, saying, this is who I am. Pay attention. This is who I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, David wasn't arrogant He was approaching God in humble boldness. He was taking God at his word. This is who you say you are, so I'm going to approach you based on what you said. You're a God of justice. You punish the sins of the fathers. You, 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 ex- you are the righteous judge of the universe. You, you, you do all these things, but you have told me you are also a God of mercy and grace. Slow to anger. A God of steadfast love and faithfulness. That phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness, that Hebrew word has said. I highlight it again. Man, that, that's a beautiful word for love because it doesn't describe a responsive love. Responsive love says, I find you attractive, therefore I love you. Responsive love says, there's something about you that stirs my affections, therefore I'm fond of you. This isn't responsive love. This is covenant love. Covenant love says, I love you because I said I love you. I love you because I choose to love you. My love isn't anchored in your performance. My love is anchored in my commitment. As faithful as God is, that's how secure you are in his love, follower of Christ. Because his love is anchored in his word, not in your character. His love is anchored in His promise, not in your performance. Every time you see these words in the Old Testament, steadfast love and faithfulness, remind yourself. That's where it's coming from. That's why those words are linked together so often throughout the Old Testament. They're all looking back to this one verse, this revelation where God says, this is who I am. This is the foundation of your relationship with me. And believer, when when you have this this in your head. Man, you're, you're only going to have this kind of boldness if you believe this is true. You will only have this kind of boldness in your relationship with God when you realize you are this secure in your relationship with God. Because your, your shame is going to kick in and say, obviously, he can't love you now. He wouldn't love you now. You're not acceptable now. You're unclean now. 
Maybe he did, but, but you know, you know how it is. Like, God, okay, yeah, he forgave me all my sins, and then I did this other stupid stuff, and it's like, well, but then I did it again, and I did it again, and I did it again. Doesn't God ever get tired of me? Doesn't God ever say, I'm fed up, that's enough? I'm over you? Not if what he says is true. You are as secure as he is faithful. And his faithfulness is rooted in his promise, not in your performance. You are secure, not because of your commitment to him, but because of his commitment to you. His faithfulness is anchored in his word, not your performance. And so what that does is it gives you this gift of boldness. And and David is just taking God at his word. And this bold faith gives David the strength to stand against the gravitational pull of shame. Think about it. Shame is like gravity, man. It just wants to pull you down, crush you under a crushing weight of inadequacy and condemnation. It tells you, you are not enough. You will never be enough. You will never measure up. You will never be good. You you will never succeed. You will never overcome. You, You are a failure. You are unloved and you are unlovable. It comes in and, and it, is, it is this pull. And when it pulls you down, man, it turns toxic because it buries your shame and your failure in your identity. And it's no longer what you did. Now it becomes who you are. It's how you see yourself. It's how you understand yourself. It's how you relate to the world. Faith in the character of God gives you the strength to stand in grace against the gravitational pull of shame. David looked back at the promise of Moses, right? When God revealed himself to Moses, we look back to the promise of God in Jesus. Same God, same promise, but a fuller revelation, right? To Moses, God gave a verbal promise. He said, hey, this is who I am, right? In Jesus, that promise took on flesh. That promise walked among us. That promise died for our sins, took our guilt and our shame, died in our place and rose again. Right? He became the embodiment of all that I had done wrong against God. He suffered the, the righteous judgment of God in my place. And when he rose again, he took my judgment so I could stand with him in his blessing. That means while, while you deserve nothing, you can expect everything. That's gospel boldness. That, that, that's, that's faith, man. To so come before God... And know that he loves you. Not because you've earned it. Not because you're attractive. But because he's declared, I find you infinitely worthwhile. You are my treasure. Humility gives you this kind of boldness. Humility also gives you the gift of honesty. In verses 3 through 6, we see this play out. Um, just look at verses 3, 4, and 5. For I, know the trans, for, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Let's pause there. So, so these verses... Basically, what he's saying is, man, God, you have given me a glimpse of the landscape of my soul. And it's not good. (laughs) It's worse than I thought. 
I can see from horizon to horizon. I don't see all the details, but, but I don't need to, man. You have cleared my eyes, and I see how overwhelmingly large the problem is. How profound my rebellion and my sin and my pride is. It's worse than I thought. I see how big it is. So what's going on in verses 4 and 5, right? What's all that stuff? Like in verse 4, you were probably like, well, what does that mean that against you and you only have I sinned? Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Didn't, didn't he sin against Uriah? Right? Yeah. <laughs> they were personal sins. They were personal violations of trust. They were definitely sins against people. So, is, so what's going on here? Is this David minimizing his offenses? You know, is this shame kind of kicking in a little bit and, and David minimizing the effect that it had on other people and just focusing? No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, this actually raises the stakes of his offense, makes it worse. Because what he's saying, in essence, is this. All sin against any person is a sin against God. All sin is a sin against God. See, I don't think he's, he's, he's saying, I didn't sin against people. What he's saying is, the people I've sinned against were created in the image of God. And by sinning against them, I, I sin against the God who, who created them. See, this doesn't make it less important. It makes it more important. It doesn't make it less weighty. It, it makes it more weighty. And what this means, you guys, is this. Th- there are no disposable people. There are no people that we can sin against without also sinning against God. There are no disposable people. If you sin against anyone, if you dehumanize anyone, somebody who's on a lower socioeconomic class than you, somebody of a different race than you, somebody, you know, a homeless person or somebody from a different political background or or a Mexican immigrant or somebody with a Latino descent, somebody from a different racial, it doesn't matter. When you dehumanize them, you sin against the God who created them in his own image. In verse 5, when when he says, "Um, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What's going on there? He's not not casting shade on his mom. He's he's talking about himself. um, And he's talking about how the landscape of the brokenness is so vast, it goes goes from, from end to end, man. It goes from from beginning to end. What this means is this, you guys. What he's saying is, this thing that happened was not just an exceptionally bad moment in my life. Right? We have a tendency to do that, right? When when something really bad happens, we tend to see it as an anomaly. Kind of a weird thing. Right? You ever been under a a, a lot of pressure? Uh, uh, Maybe you're feeling a lot of urgency. And then someone comes in and, and, and then they add to the pressure. Or maybe they say the wrong thing and it kind of triggers you. And all this ugliness comes out. You ever been there? Yes. I know you have. I've been there, right? And that ugliness pours out. You say a mean thing or you snap at them or, or you yell or, 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 or just ugliness comes out, right? And then you get on the other side of it and you're like, ooh, where'd that come from? As if it didn't come out of you, right? You're like, like that's so strange. That, that's not who I am. That's not who I... Yeah, okay, here's the thing. What David is saying, that, that's actually who you are. You at your worst is the closest glimpse to who you are as you are. What do I mean by that? Think about how much effort you put in every single day to buttoning yourself down and cleaning yourself up. 
right? You're, you're constantly monitoring your behavior. You're constantly monitoring your words. You're, you're constantly monitoring how people perceive you and interact with you. You're, 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 you're filtering yourself here, and you're changing how you act here, and you're, you're kind of doing... What are you doing when you're doing that? You're keeping it all buttoned down, because if you just let it all flow out, man, you'd be ugly, right? Because that's what's there. In that moment, when the pressure comes in and that ugliness comes out, it's just the buttons came off. Right? Stuff's coming out. It's been there all the time. And David is saying, man, I see it. This wasn't just an anomaly. This just wasn't just a a one-time thing. This reveals something to me about me. And it's something that is very, very difficult and very hard to see. It's vast. And I see it all. I haven't done every bad thing, but I'm capable of doing every bad thing. It's all, it's all here. And it's in that place, it's in that place when he gets a glimpse of how vast his brokenness, his sin is, how deeply corrupting his pride is, how, how dark his motivations are, how much evil he's actually capable of doing. It's in that place where he says, I have no right to demand your love. I have nothing good to leverage. There is no good work for me to, 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 to leverage against you, God. I've got nothing to offer you but my sin and my brokenness. It's in that place he comes with his bold request. With nothing to offer. With nothing on his side. With nothing to persuade God. And then we get to verse 6. Verse 6 for me is the most beautiful verse in this psalm. Um, Verse 6 says, uh, Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And you're like, Steve, I don't even know what that means. Okay, it's hard. This is weird. Um, This is a a difficult verse to translate in Hebrew. And and, and one translation translates it like this. You love the truth in the darkness. In my night, you teach me wisdom. You love the truth in the darkness. In my night, you teach me wisdom. All right, so it's hard to translate, but let me take a stab at what David is saying here, what he means. God loves to meet us in our dark places. In the places we crave to keep hidden. That's that's where David is, man. David is in that dark place, and he meets God there. And when he meets God there, God shows him things about himself and about God's character and about the nature of love that he couldn't learn in any other place. There is a wisdom that comes from meeting God in that place. Let me ask you something. Why is that place dark? Why are those places dark in our soul? Why are those places that we don't like to see? Why do we... Because we keep them dark. You know why? Because we don't like to look at them. We keep them out of view. We lock them away. We stick them in a cellar and we try to padlock it and pretend like it's not there. Are those places dark to God? You think God has a hard time seeing those places? Those places of disappointment, those places of deep shame, those places of deep failure, those places of, of, of deep woundedness or betrayal. You think God has a hard time seeing us there? No. They're not dark to God. They're, they're dark to us. Right? 
And what God did for David is by grace, he flipped on the light. And he's like, take a look, buddy. Meet me here because I'm already here. David's saying, God, you, you meet me in the dark places. You, you meet me in the places I feel abandoned. You meet me in the places that I feel unloved. You meet me in the places where I feel unworthy in profound ways. But I never engage you when I'm at my best, when I'm in my strength, when I'm full of my own goodness and and, and performance. Man, you meet me in these dark places in deeply transformative and profound ways. And when you meet me there, I get a wisdom I can't get anywhere else. So our word hypocrite um, comes from the Old English, um, and, and it actually meant actor originally. A hypocrite was, a, was an actor, and that comes from, it, it's a combination of two, two uh, a Greek prefix and a Greek um, root that, that means hyper is, 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 is um, under, and, and crit means to judge, and it means to judge from behind. And it actually came from the practice of, of the way the actors did. So if you went to a Shakespearean theater uh, during the, during, back in the day, right, uh, when it was super authentic, right? If you were back then, there were no female actors. It was all men up there. So, like, imagine Romeo and Juliet, right? It's two dudes, okay? It's a dude in the balcony. It's a dude down here. And they got these masks that they hold because they play multiple characters. They don't have different people for each character. They have actors who play different roles, and they just put up a different mask at different times, right? And, and so I talk behind this mask, and I'm Juliet, and I talk from behind this mask, and I'm, I don't know, Ruffalo, I don't remember the guy's name. You know, and, I, and then I move the mask over here, and I'm, I'm this guy, right? And so that mask was called a hypocrite. And then later, it became generalized to describe the actor themselves. It was, it was somebody who played a role, somebody who stood behind a mask. Can you imagine trying to talk to somebody who shows up with one of those masks? It's like you're going out to coffee with somebody, and you sit down, you're getting your stuff together, and you look up, and they're like, Hello. Steve, you know I can see you, right? No, I'm Margaret. No, Steve, I, I know it's you. I see. No. No, you're talking to Margaret. Look at the mask. Right? It'd be a little weird, right? be a little weird, right? You're like, Steve, seriously, stop, right? Okay, that's what we do with God. We show up with our masks, and we demand that God speak to the mask. We show up with our false selves. We show up with our image of who we want to be, who we pretend to be, and we insist that God relate to us through that image of our best self. And it's not us. We're demanding that God play in our little self-deception. Because we're so desperate to think this way about ourselves. We need, uh, God, will you just treat me as if that's actually who I am? Will you just, and God won't do that. God doesn't show up and play. God doesn't, he's not going to let you show up with your little mask and sit there across from the coffee table and pretend that you're Margaret. It's not going to happen unless your name is Margaret, and then it's okay. But, but he, he, he's going to insist, right, that, that you're honest. It is impossible to have an honest conversation with a hypocrite. 
God loves to meet us in the honest places. God loves to meet us in the dark places. Because when we are honest enough to meet God there, He will give us a wisdom we cannot get anywhere else. You guys, this takes boldness on so many levels. It takes boldness to come before God and and actually be honest. But I think, honestly, the hardest part often isn't coming before God. It's seeing ourselves. I think often the most difficult part is growing in our own awareness of our brokenness. Coming to see just how desperately selfish and manipulative and ugly our hearts actually are. That is an overwhelming darkness. That is an overwhelming shame. And we're terrified of it because it will swallow us. The only thing that will give us the courage to see ourselves as we actually are, the only thing that will give us the courage to actually come into the presence of God in honesty, to meet God in the dark places, is a faith that He is who He says He is. That He loves us even though we bring nothing to the table but our shame. That He's already accepted us because He accepts His Son. That He already delights in us not because we are good, but because Jesus is. When we understand how deeply we are loved, It will free us up to admit how broken and jacked up we are. It will will free us up to actually come into God's presence with, with honesty and meet God in the dark places. That takes boldness. And that boldness only flows from humility, and that humility only flows from having been pushed into our shame. And instead of running away and covering it up and hiding it and explaining and minimizing it, pushing through the shame to the grace of God. Coming into the presence of God with the darkness. Coming into the presence of God with all honesty. Without the pretending or the performing or the excuses or the minimizations, but actually coming into the presence of God. And meeting Him without the mask. So the great irony, obviously, is that God already knows who we are. He already knows our entire mess. It's not dark to Him. Often the most terrifying piece for us is for us to discover what He already knows. See, here's the thing. God's not waiting for you to clean up your mess because He knows it's too big for you to clean up. He's not waiting for you to perform and pretend. He's not waiting for you to make yourself better. He's not waiting for you to improve your mask. He's waiting for you to be honest. Because it's only when you're honest that he can have an honest conversation with you. God's speaking to you right now in ways you can't hear or understand because you're not honestly meeting him. You're showing up as Margaret when he wants to speak to you. You're showing up with your mask when he wants to speak to you. He wants to meet you in the dark places of your honesty so that he can communicate love to you because that's where transformation takes place. Humility gave David the gift of 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 being bold, it gave him the ability to be honest, and that honesty kept him grounded in dependence. I'm going to move kind of quickly through these next couple of points, but so just take a look at verse 10. David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. God, David looks at the landscape, the, the messed up, broken landscape. He sees 
from horizon to horizon, and all he sees is darkness and jacked upness and brokenness and sin and selfishness and greed. And, and he's looking at this mess, and he's like, I can't fix this. I can't clean this up. This, I can't just rearrange the furniture here. right? I, I can't just put new, new paint on. I, God, I need, a, I need a clean heart. You can't clean this up. I need something new. He's coming and saying, God, in this place of absolute brokenness, in this place of absolute bankruptcy, in this place of being absolutely dependent, I need to come to you to do for me what I can't do for myself. I can't fix my heart. Will you fix it for me? Will you, you, Lord, give me a clean heart? Will you renew a right spirit within me? I need you to do this for me because I can't do it for you. Right? Give me a new heart. Give me new motivations. Give me a spirit that is aligned with what is right. I don't even want to do what's right. You're telling me it's right, but it doesn't feel right, and I don't want to do what's right. Will you, will you give me a right spirit? Will you realign the affections of my heart? Will you create within me a clean spirit? Because I can't fix it. it. It's beyond me, right? I, I came with nothing, and I can't make something out of nothing. I'm not you. I need you to do this for me. In certain religious circles that, I, that I've run in and, and, and people I love, they use language I don't like. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and the language is this, it, this idea of, I hear a lot about rededicating my life to Jesus. And it's usually combined with this, you know, I don't know, the, the campfire experience, which is such a unique Christian thing, right? They, they take people and they put them in a camp and they physically exhaust them through activities all week. They make them sleep deprived. They feed them food that is incredibly fatty but very tasty. And by the end of the week, they're completely exhausted. Then they stick them around a campfire and they sing kumbaya love songs to Jesus. And they're like, do you want to rededicate your life to Jesus? And everyone there is like, yes! They're feeling it out of their exhaustion. They're so into the moment. And they're like, I got off track. I believed in Jesus. And then I started doing all these bad things and I need to stop doing these bad things and now I'm going to rededicate my life to Jesus and it's all going to be better and it's not (laughs) anybody who's lived through that you know exactly what I'm talking about and if you don't know what I'm talking about it's okay, you didn't miss out on anything um what ends up happening, man, is, is people come off the, the camp high, you know, for the next two weeks, they're like all disciplined and reading their Bible and they're praying and, and then about two weeks in, they're like Ooh, I don't want to do that anymore. And you know why? Because what are they leaning into? When I rededicate my life to Jesus, what, where's my hope? Where's my strength? Where's my. It's like, I'm going to clean myself up for you, God. You deserve better than what I'm giving you, so I'm going to work harder. I'm going to perform better. I'm going to clean this nasty heart up for you, God. And God's like, yeah, it's not going to go so well. I'll meet you on the other side. Once you rediscover your shame, once you rediscover your limitations, once you rediscover your need for dependency, I'll meet you on the other side. I'll be waiting for you because I love you and right now you don't know that. Right now you're performing for me and you're working for me and it's separating you from an experience of my love and you think you can earn it because you think you can fix this mess and you can't, but I'm going to meet you on the other side. David is on the other side, and he's like, God, create in me a clean heart. Give me the desires I can't produce for you. Will you give me both the desire and the ability 
to follow you well. Complete dependence. Not, I will do this for you, God, but, but I got nothing to work with. I need you to do it for, for me, right? Verse 12, then I uh, uh, restore to me the, the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Right, God, will you, will you awaken my heart in gratitude to how much you paid to save me, to deliver me, that, 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 that you loved me that much? And then will you like make me so grateful that I'm overflowing with joy? And then from that place of, of gratitude and joy, will you give me a willing spirit? That's an interesting phrase. Will you give me a spirit that actually wants to do what's right? Because I don't have one of those. All I got is this brokenness. Will you recreate? Will you give me a clean heart? Will you, will you awaken within me a gratitude and a joy that, that leads to a desire to follow you from joy to joy to joy? You guys, there will never come a point in your Christian life where you outgrow Jesus. There never comes a point in your Christian life where you outgrow your need for grace. It's not about, hey, believe in Jesus, now get down to the hard work of obedience. Believe in Jesus, now get to the hard work of fixing your life. It's you believe in Jesus because you're absolutely helpless and he's the only one that can help you. Keep believing in Jesus because he's the only one that can help you. Dependence flows from humility. Humility is the gift of shame when we realize our limitations. We hate being dependent. We hate being helpless. That's why we fight against it. In our pride, man, we want to solve our own problems. We want to fix our own mess. We want to, we want to stand on our own two feet. And, and the, the beautiful gift of grace is for us to realize we have no feet to stand on. We have no strength outside of what He does in us and through us. And so it pushes us into this place where you'll never grow to a place where you're like, oh man, I've really gotten my life together. I'm so proud of myself spiritually. I'm doing so well. Some of you have been there before. That's the camp high. And you know about two weeks to two months later, it's all coming crashing down because that was pride. What ends up happening is is when you grow in your spiritual walk in Jesus, out of dependency, It just increases your joy and gratitude, not your pride. You never get to a place where you're like, man, I'm doing a great job for Jesus. You're like, holy cow, look what God did with me. Right? It's like, I am not what I once was. I'm not what I should be, but I am not what I once was. And it's not me. I didn't do this for God. God did this in me. You change. And it increases your gratitude, which increases your joy, which increases your yieldedness and dependence on God, which allows him to continue to realign the desires of your heart. All right, when we're doing well, it increases our gratitude. So God gives us the gift of humility. God gives us the gift of boldness and honesty. God gives us the gift of dependency. And as a result, God gives us the gift of freedom. Freedom from performance, freedom from the need to impress and perform and, 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 um, and work. Verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. This is weird because God's the one that commanded sacrifices, right? Like, isn't that part of the God revealed the sacrificial code in the Old Testament and said, hey, you guys, 
this is how you're going to approach me. You're going to approach me through sacrifice. Now David is like, hey, I've got this great revelation. God takes no pleasure in sacrifices. Well, then why did God command it? Why does God command something he takes no pleasure in? Well, the problem isn't with what God has done. The problem comes with the way we interpret it. See, God's not saying here, David's not saying that God doesn't want sacrifices. He's saying he doesn't want them offered in the wrong way or for the wrong purpose. When the Old Testament Jews offered sacrifices, their heart was tempted to do it uh, as performance. Like, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this great sacrifice to God. It's going to be so great that he's going to love me. It's going to be so great he's going to be for me. It's going to be so great that it's going to move the hand of God in blessing toward me. So they offered sacrifices not in gratitude, but as a performance for God to earn his favor. And listen, sacrifices offered in that way become offensive to God. Do you realize that there are ways you can obey God and offend God in your obedience? Luther called these damnable good works. Works that are good but done for the wrong purpose and done with the wrong motivation. They are works that are done to try to leverage God, to put God in a corner, to put God in my debt. If you have ever complained to God, God, I didn't deserve this, then you know exactly what this heart impulse feels like. I went to church. I prayed. I did the right thing. I made sacrifices. Therefore, you, God, are indebted to me. Those are damnable good works. Those are the kind of good works we need to repent of. Because those are good works that are done to perform, to persuade. They're good works that are designed to reinforce our false image of ourselves and try to put God into a box where he has to meet us um, in our hypocrisy. So why did God give sacrifices then? If not to, to, for us to perform, to, to get him to love us more, to Well, he gave us sacrifices to remind us that sin has consequences. He gave us sacrifices to remind us that he is a just God and that he will punish sin. But he also gave us sacrifices to point forward to the fulfillment of that sacrifice, Jesus. That that God would, in fact, become flesh to become the ultimate sacrifice. That in love, he would bear a consequence he didn't deserve so we could get a blessing we could never earn. The reason there are sacrifices is to remind us and amplify our need. When you obey God, when you go to church, when you read your Bible, when you pray, when you choose to do the right thing, when you tell the truth at work, when you actually fulfill out your IRS forms honestly, when you do these things, they don't make you better. They don't impress God. If you're doing those things to reinforce a false image of yourself, they're garbage. They need to be a response to God's love, not an attempt to earn God's love. We do good because we are loved. We do So here's the thing. When we're absolutely dependent, when we realize, man, I got nothing to offer God. He has to do it in me and for me. When I come to God, I'm like, God, just fill me with the gratitude and the joy of my salvation. Fill my vision with how much you've loved me and how much you've given me. 
Then our hearts are, are softened and recreated in love, and we want to follow and obey what we love. We want to please what we love. We want to yield to what we love. You will start following God. You will change. But it won't be your performance for God. It'll be your response to God. God gives you freedom. All right, so at our house, when we have a guest coming over, and, and um, I don't know, maybe you do a similar thing. We do this thing called a 10-minute tidy, you know? So like, so like Lauren will just call it out, like, hey, everybody, all right, 10-minute tidy. And we all know what that means, right? It's time to, you know, go vacuum up the dog hair because we've got dogs and hair happens, and, and, and we want to vacuum up the dog hair. We want to we wanna go take all the dishes and, and put them in the dishwasher, or at least put them in the sink so it looks like they're on their way to the dishwasher. And then we want to we wanna get all the things that are on all the flat horizontal surfaces and move them all to some other flat horizontal surface that's no longer in view, right? You know what I'm saying? Like you just, you pick it all up and you carry it and you open the door and you're like, okay, yeah, click, this is, all right, now you're like, yes, clean house, 10 minutes tidy, everybody's welcome. That's what we do with God. That, that's what we're doing is, is we're just shuffling things around and trying to create a safe space where we can like, all right, all right, now you can come in, God. Now it's all clean. Now it's all good. Ten minutes, Heidi. But, but God sees through walls. God watched us all day. You know, God knows what's going on, right? There's this sense in which all we're doing when we do that, when we do these religious activities, is we're putting our mask back on. And we're doing it more for us than for God. Because we hate to be exposed in our shame. We hate to feel dependent. We hate, let's be honest, we hate humility. And that's our pride. But there's nothing sweeter. There's nothing more empowering. There's nothing more beautiful than, us, than a heart that has been freed into the strength of humility, into the boldness of faith, into the power of dependency. This is the path of transformation. This is the path and the gift of, of, of shame. Listen, God wants to set you free. He hates your sin, and he wants you to be freed from it. It is robbing you of life, and it is stealing from him his glory. But his primary purpose with you is not to change your behavior. His primary purpose with you is to change your heart. A changed heart will lead to new behavior. He wants to change your heart, which means he wants to deliver you into the beauty of humility. He wants you to admit your helplessness. He wants you to meet him in the dark places. Will you do that? Will you have the boldness to allow God to reveal to you things that you don't want to see about yourself and to meet him in the humility that his love will, will, will give to you? Will you push through the shame instead of hiding it and pulling it away and creating this false self and locking it? Will you push through the shame to the grace of God and listen to the invitation? Because he's waiting. He's already there. And we can't hear him until we come to him in our true self, with our honest face, with a humility that empowers us to hear. You guys, I'm going to close this word of prayer. We're going to share communion in a moment. But um, first we're going to have a time of response. Let God speak to your heart. Let me pray for us. And then we'll share communion. Father, we, we thank you that you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. That you are a God rich in mercy and gracious. That 
you are slow to anger. That you love us even though we bring nothing to the table. Even though we have nothing to offer you. Even though when the lights are turned on, all we have are the mountains and the deserts of our own pride and self-interest. Lord, we confess to you our need, our need for grace, because, uh, Spirit, if you don't give us the grace of the gospel, if you do not speak to our hearts the love of God, we will not have the boldness to come honestly, to see ourselves as, as we actually are, to wear our, our true faces. Lord, give us the strength to push through our shame, those places we're exposed, those places where, where we feel vulnerable, those places where we are just terribly afraid. Because we know, Lord, that in those places you will meet us in profound ways. Because you're just waiting to have an honest conversation. You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.